Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, but the annuals don't count. Well, welcome everybody to the Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thank you for joining us for this review episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Today on the show, Dan and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man, Volume 5, number 54.LR, and number 55, Legacy 856. But first up is Amazing Spider-Man 54.LR, which is written by Dan. I'm kind of happy this is the last time I got to go through all these names on this book. (laughs) Nick Spencer and Matthew Rosenberg, with art by Federico Vincentini and Takeshi Miyazawa, inks by both artists as well as Scott Hanna, colors by Eric Archiniega, and letters by VZ's Ariana Mar, and a cover by Marcella Ferreira and David Curiel. This issue was first released on December 23rd, 2020. What's Back in time, 2020s. Let's talk about it. Did they close out 2020 in style in these .LR issues? Was this journey worth it? Mark, back when we first started talking about the LR issues, you you were discussing, well, look, annuals definitely don't count, but I'm on the fence about LR issues. Has this series, by its conclusion, won you over? No. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I've been saying since maybe the second one of these that I don't quite get why we needed to kind of have this sidebar with the spider squad people. I mean, I get once we kind of get into 55 per some of the stuff Kindred is saying why they're being brought into this story. But like, you know, we'll we'll talk about how how truly earned and accurate that is when we do that review. I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is this just feels like a way to pad out this story to kind of give the Sin Eater more of an arc, even though that really doesn't go far. We get a little more of moral in here, but again, that doesn't go far. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. This just feels like a lot of like half measures and, you know, not fully pulling the trigger on things. We get, this opening montage from Spectacular 200, which was kind of cool and surreal to be seen because, you know, obviously it seems like this entire arc is mining a lot from 
well, both the 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 no drug code or the no no comic code issues of Amazing from the seventies, but then also the um, Child Within and then spe- you know spectacular two hundred Death of Harry Osborne stories for kind of its thematic relevance. Uh, but you know, what, what did you think of this two hundred? intro dan because it like you know at the at one breath it's like oh that's cool to kind of see the the jmd and sal Buscema stuff but you know i don't know like does do, do, do we really need like what how many pages of this comic was this literally a reprint of this story <laughs> i mean i think they they gave us additional pages to make up for it i i i was bummed that sal and jmd didn't get their names in the credits for this issue i mean to me that's kind of a sin on its own. Like don't reprint their work and then not give them credit for it, especially for an arc that Marvel refuses to reprint in any kind of collection. You know, for a lot of people, this is their first experience of this really great story. I do think that like it was fitting that this got brought up. You and I brought up this very moment on an earlier review that like this moment seemed key to Harry's motivations as kindred. So I do think it was appropriate that they referenced it here. Although I actually think putting these pages in Amazing Spider-Man 55 would probably been more like a better use of them because I don't think these themes are necessarily all that explored in the pages of this issue as much as they are in the issue we're going to be talking about next. But nevertheless, it does ground the kind of history of Harry acting this way and having concerns of the kind he's expressing in this this story, this last remains story. It's just that this issue is not really about that in the way that 55 is. It was kind of weird to see it printed here. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I almost feel like because of this inclusion, this this LR issue probably feels the most connected to the main storyline. But like, that's the thing. It, it 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 really is kind of just hanging there you know, in suspension on its own, it's really not connected to the story that these LR issues was otherwise telling. And then, you know, so it kind of gets forgotten once you get into the, 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 the main crust of the story there. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a cool thing. I don't know. Like, yes, for, for the love of God, why are we not crediting the original artists here? But also like, I mean, even if there's an extra page count, I don't know how I feel about, in the context of your story itself, just re- like flat out reprinting pages from another story, it feels kind of like a cheat to me. I mean, like, you know, at least we had some issues earlier, you know, during, I think, what was it? The Absolute Carnage, where we kind of like recreated some moments from like the Ramita Stan Lee years, but they were done by, I don't, was it Otley or whoever? But you know what I mean? Like, at least we were recreating it and kind of giving it a, a, a modern context in that regard whereas this this was just a flat-out reprint and uh, you know like uh, i don't i don't know how, I, I i'll be i'll be I, I don't mean to sound like a cranky old man here dan but it's like i feel like marvel needs to be doing better than that uh, than just doing reprints i'm sorry i do feel like some of the art on these books is kind of not rushed but it seemed like there i mean the past few issues of this have been juggling multiple artists and it's you know it's artfully split up between the multiple storylines that are going on I feel like they were probably already crunched for pages. That's not an excuse, but in in my mind, that probably is maybe one of the reasons for it. Also, because like, how do you reproduce Sal? I just don't know that it needed to be in this issue as, as happy as I was to see 
them acknowledging this is a, a pivotal moment for these characters. And, 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 and like th- those beats being that Harry, you know, it, it seems to be threatening MJ by taking her to the top of the, whatever bridge it is where Gwen was killed. It turns out he's not actually threatening her. It, he's bringing her there because he believes that Gwen's death was the moment that all of their innocence was shattered, but he doesn't actually blame his father for it. He blames Peter for it. And he's not actually out to hurt MJ. He feels like he's saving them from the threat that is Peter's life as Spider-Man, which again would be is a predominant theme in issue 55, which we'll talk about. It almost feels like it was like a a lot of this LR stuff. And this is kind of my opinion on overall feels like, well, we didn't have the room for it in the main story. So let's flesh it out a bit more and shove it in its own book. And it's like, well, maybe we didn't have room to print, you know, these re prints of, of these pages in 55 where it would have been more appropriate, but LR is there as the dumping ground for kind of all the other subplots that we need to hit on for this story to work. And they'll ultimately be collected together. So why not just do that? And readers buying the book later won't know the difference. I guess so. but And yet when, you know, we get to 55 and, you know, some of our earlier issues of the main book, you know, these comics haven't exactly been rich in depth of content uh, but that's neither here nor there one of the su- <laughs> one of the one of the subplots that we have been consistently getting I guess in LR is MJ with Norman Osborne so we kind of get some semblance of a payoff there interesting there was some interesting stuff with this interaction i'll get like i mean like that kind of seems to be the 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 theme of the this whole storyline is you know it i don't think it really works as a whole but there are interesting moments and interactions throughout and this was one of them i would say right yeah so she like dresses down norman and doesn't allow him to apologize now that he is seemingly sane and kind of points out why that is which is that like norman is not a down on his luck loser of the week, like most of Spider-Man's villains who kind of resorted to superpowers or fell backwards into them or sought out Jameson to fund their creation because they were kind of down on their luck. You know, he's a guy that's always been the goblin, whether amnesia prevented it or not, you know, his sickness comes from within. And so him apologizing now that he's not the goblin she feels like is not earned. And I think that that's certainly a good point on, on her part and a, and a strong moment from MJ. And I think, you know, uh, this Vicentini or Vicentini, it's just Vicentini. Uh, I think his MJ is really a strong interpretation of the character ever since she first got that splash page that he drew with her get, you know, getting off the plane. I love his interpretation of her, not just because like, you know, she's not cheesecakey. She feels like strong and emotional and well articulated within the pages of this comic. And I felt like this was a a great scene. I like him watching him draw characters interacting with each other in this way. And MJ just stole the show for me here. I found her analysis of Norman to be pretty insightful. I mean, like it, it, I don't think we've ever talked about Norman in those terms on this show. And it kind of made some things click for me in terms of his standing in, in Peter's life. That was a pretty cool moment in a way, you know, and it elevates Norman in a way that I don't know he's been truly elevated. And yet it seems so patently obvious uh, when you think about it. 
less, I think, insightful was the Sin Eater in this comic. Like, what is the arc of the Sin Eater, Dan? Because damned if I really can put my finger on it from this storyline. It just doesn't, it it feels like we just kind of ran in a circle and now... Now the Sin Eater's gone. <laughs> right? Well, well, I mean, that that's it. Like, I thought he had a really strong conclusion at the end of the last story, and yet here he was not dead. You know, the new wrinkle that seemed to be maybe taking him somewhere else was like, well, what happens when he gets Moreland's powers, right? Like, and he's going to hunt down these spider people. But by the time he's able to do that, they're not, they don't have his sins anymore, or the sins anymore. So his quest is really for nothing. It's already been completed, but he's being, you know, kind of like dogged about it, I guess. So like, you know, good on him. But even then he doesn't use Moreland's powers for any kind of interesting thing, right? He like, if if the only person he robs of any of their stuff from is Spider-Woman, who is probably the most tangentially connected to the totemic, spider powers of of any of them and she you know says oh it must be Moreland's powers i'm not sure how she deduces that and i guess she was involved in spider-verse back in the day very ancillary but yeah she i mean well she got her own book launched during it didn't it i mean you know with the greg land covers and everything until the book actually got its own voice once it was away from (laughs) spider-verse Yeah, exactly. I always I always recommend that book and I'm like, no, you got to jump past so like that issue four part. or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I guess maybe the biggest thing to come from this, which is not related really to the Sin Eater who kind of his art goes nowhere. He just kind of gets a premonition. And that's because he like devours Julia Carpenter's Madam Web powers as she sacrifices herself, I, I guess, for some reason. She seems to think that that's going to take down the Sin Eater, which I guess it does. So she's right. Is it too much for me to wish that this is the end of Madam <laughs> Web as as a character? Well, at least this iteration, for sure. I mean, you know, I'm sure at some point the 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 what do you call it the the spirit of Madam Web will will go to someone else, probably. But you know, like I I, I mean. In general, Madam Web doesn't really work for me. But if like if you got to have like a, a spider premonition character, I, I don't know why Julia Carpenter had to be like the next one to get it, so to speak. So you know, it's kind of maybe maybe this is it <laughs> for her at least. <laughs> if that is the beat that happens here, they really don't spell it out, and we don't really know what happens after Sin Eater's defeated in regards to those powers, like. He seemed to give up the Juggernaut's powers just voluntarily. You know, there's a Juggernaut book that's going on right now that's pretty good. I'd, I'd recommend you check it out. You know, does the Juggernaut powerless forever? You know, like what happened to like the Lethal Legion? Are, are they suddenly waking up in that hospital with their powers back? That feels like ages ago, but that's still technically a part of this story. So I guess it's it's wait and see. On that, whatever they end up deciding how these powers work. But yeah, so Sin Eater gets this premonition, which, in you know, looking back on it now, seems to just really be a summation of like some of the events of issue 55. But what's curious about it is that the Sin Eater suggests that it was all for nothing and a lie, like what his kind of mission from, you know, from Kindred was. Sorry, my brain is just like spinning out here. I don't really know what to take away from that. Uh, really? I mean, did that did that strike any chord for you? I mean, like, 
I guess we kind of already knew that Kindred's motivations were maybe not quite as dialed in as Sin Eater's were, but that's not really enough because he then he, he follows up by killing himself. So like something strong he must have seen in the future. I guess, but no, I mean, like it just it just felt like like a big circular, you know, him basically saying this was all for nothing. It's kind of like the what have I been reading for the last five issues? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like, you're literally telling us like, well, this whole journey meant nothing. So just read the next issue, <laughs> and then then something more important will happen that doesn't involve me. Come on, that's 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 garbage storytelling. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be that nasty about it, but like. It's insulting. It's like you're basically saying this entire sidebar subplot was nothing. It was meaningless. <laughs> and that's the resolution to the story. And I would say that being the main arc of Last Remains was really not worth it. I mean, there's a conclusion here, right? They're all captured by Kindred. And then Kingpin's forces arrive to help out. Norman uh, with whatever Norman is planning in terms of the main arc of last remains. Sin Eater's suicide is kind of the end of it. And I did want to point out, there was an interesting thing in the back of this book. You know, I think we've had this discussion about like, and people have talked about Craven committing suicide in the pages of Craven's last hunt and it being a very violent death that then, you know, facilitated the follow-up story wherein Craven spirit, you know, comes back and, resents killing himself. So as JMD to is mea culpa for, for glorifying suicide uh, in the back of this book, we have an editor's note here about like, if you are feeling suicidal thoughts, you know, some help numbers and things like that. And I thought that was nice. You know, I, I don't know how many people are going to empathize with the sin eaters plight, but I, I do think like featuring something as uh, destructive to our culture as suicide it was nice that they at least, you know, uh, highlighted that in some way. Do you want to give this a grade? Before before we do, I do. I, but we're going to hit on this in the next one. Is like there's this idea that Norman seemingly is reverting back to his goblin persona, but at the end of this book, and we'll talk. On, I just wanted to put a pin in that because we're going to talk about that in, in issue fifty five as as like a a big like huh. To me, yeah, um, yeah. So, like what, again, yeah. what was the point of all this? You know, like we literally spent how many issues of Spider-Man? Will he or won't he with Norman? And now it seems to be for naught, right? <laughs> for me, Mark, this issue is like a D plus. You're kinder than I, I. I was gonna say I was gonna go C minus for the MJ Norman stuff and. Well, I didn't appreciate the straight up reprint. The, the nostalgia was kind of fun, so I'll say C minus. <laughs> but C minus, but the whole, uh, but the yeah. whole series, I, I wouldn't be, you know, the the L, the dot LR. I mean, I would give that whole thing a D plus because I feel like it just was a waste of time and was completely unessential to this. Like I could, I could just read the main book and really not miss a beat with this book, right? Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And, you know, all the one more day stuff and, and back in black stuff where well, there's no conclusion to that. So like it almost feels perfunctory. So so next up, we're going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man volume five, number 55. That's Legacy 856, which was written by Nick Spencer with pencils by Patrick Gleason, colors by Edgar Delgado and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna or Caramagna. 
because it's like lasagna, and a cover by Patrick Gleason. This issue was first released on December 30th, 2020. That would be the last issue of 2020. Let me start by asking you, how many of these, uh, how many copies of this issue are you currently hoarding for your college fund? You know, I bought one and then I bought a variant, the the uh, Dell Auto variant. So I technically have two, but I, the second one I have in not owning it for the right reason, I guess, you know, like people wanted it for the cover. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I actually I'm awaiting my my LCS uh, shipping this book out, the the Gleason cover out to me. I, I did I w- my my wife was actually out and about and was in a comic book store last Wednesday and said, "Oh, do you need anything?" And I knew I wasn't going to get this issue in time so, for this review, so I said, "Oh, if they have any variants of a fifty-five, and she got me the Delato one. So I have the I have those two as well. But yeah, uh, this book is, and it's got to be for the cover. Dan. I mean, I guess there are things that happen in this issue that might be inflating the value on a speculator side but i i honestly think it's just the the, the hype that this cover has started this thing's selling I've, I've seen it already for what 30 40 bucks on ebay i mean come on people what are you doing uh, i'm gonna be honest though this cover ever since it was released in the preview has been the backdrop to my phone for like four months you know like it is one of the coolest covers that's the reason you bring gleason on it's like it, it's not necessarily indicative of what's in the book but it is one of the coolest covers. When people talk about like Alex Ross covers being cool, like this is my version of like Alex Ross covers being cool. Like Patrick Gleason is doing really like cool, trippy visuals and neat things to covers that like I, I will never forget. I understand people's love of this cover. I just didn't expect it to start selling for like over 30 bucks online. It's super cool, but at the same token, there's there's kind of an inventory cover quality to it, don't you think? I mean, this kind of feels like what the 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 J. Scott Campbell cover Campbell covers we got during the the JMS uh, JRJR run. I mean, it, it, this this is better than that, but at the same token, like. There's something about this that necessarily, like you say, reflects what's in the book. So I get, hey man, people in there, it, it's their money, not mine. I'm gonna have my book for three ninety nine, so it's fine. <laughs> well, that's a bubble that's gonna burst immediately when all the people who like this cover already own one. You know, like people are not gonna be chomping at the bit to get their hands on this thing. But let's talk about this comic, Dan, because this is. This is something else. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be an interesting conversation, I think, as they all are. But I exploded on Twitter about this comic. And it's not I think people maybe didn't understand necessarily what I was upset about, because I don't think it's really about the quality of the comic that gets me so angry. And we can discuss that because there is something to that. And this is probably an unfair comic to really draw my ire quite so strongly. There was a level of anger that just came off of me when this book concluded that has subsided that will allow me to talk about this book for all of its merits. And there are a lot of them. But my initial reaction to this book was, uh, you know, uh, quite heated. You're quite justified in it. I mean, let's, let's just lay some things out here before we get into what's right or what's wrong about it. Like this is so, you know, this comic has been 
for the better part of the last three months has been marketed as the final chapter of this long running arc. So much so that every issue had a checklist of, you know, of all the LR issues and amazing Spider-Man issues to give you the reading order. The storyline had all these preludes via solicitations and other marketing materials. I mean, like, you know, the, the buildup to the kindred and, you know, the interviews with CBR with Nick Spencer that we're going to get answers about. It's not just who kindred is, but why he's doing it. And this is the storyline where that's going to come out. I feel like that's the context you need to have to kind of get to the heart of why we have many conflicting opinions about this comic book, right? I mean, like, I, I, I think it's important to know, don't you think? I think so, too. I, you know what? I, I, we were going to save our discussion of editorial to the end, but I actually think we maybe need to get to it up front. You talked about all these marketing materials and things. I think this comic is a complete and utter failure on part of the editorial team uh, in the spider office. And I think it is such a failure that that team needs to, and I, I don't wish anybody losing their job or, or, or getting reshuffled right now. But I think if you were a part of releasing this comic, you need to look at this comic and I don't know, don't listen to us, but we are not alone in this, in our feelings about this. I, I think it is time for true look in the mirror about how you are marketing this book, titling this book, putting artists on this book, everything that an editor's job is to do, which is to support the creative team and shape it and guide it forward. I think completely failed on this particular story. And this issue is the book that highlighted it the most to me. And that's and, and that's that's to say, I think the writing in this issue is really great. And I think the art in this issue is superb. Like maybe the most handsome looking art in a Spider-Man comic. But every role that the editor had to play in putting this book together and getting it to people was a complete and utter failure. And Mark, we can unpack that. Just respond to me saying that. Uh, uh, what do you think about me saying that? It's indicative of a problem this book has had, not just for the last few months, not even just for the past year, not even just for this specific creative run, meaning the Nick Spencer run. But this is this is a problem that dates back now six or seven years on this book in terms of these kinds of issues and concerns. And we can, like I said, we'll unpack that for later. Let's talk specifically about 55 here. You know, I agree with you. And I, like I said, I just think it needs to go further that, that this is, this is like, this isn't just an isolated problem. Like this is, this is the, these failures have been consistent for many years now. And, you know, there is a, there are common denominators, which I think need to be discussed at greater length in a little bit. Okay. All right. So put that aside, let's talk about like, the content within the pages of this book? I would say this is probably in an isolated situation. This was probably my favorite issue of this arc starting, you know, since the first one, uh, I felt that there was the most, this was the most character driven that we've gotten in a while. I feel that 
you know, we 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 kind of hit on some really interesting notes. Gleason's art is just phenomenal throughout. There's a lot of really interesting stuff here. It does it work in the context of the larger arc? No, and that ties into our other criticism. If you just gave me this comic to read, it didn't tell me that this was supposed to be the final chapter of this long-running story that's been building for the last two years. I would have looked at it and been like, "Wow, it's a pretty cool comic. There's a lot of cool stuff here, and I'm really digging what's going, what this kindred is trying to, to drill down into uh, with Spider-Man." And they seem to be teasing a lot of other stuff that that might pay off down the line. I mean, is that a fair assessment of like what was really interesting about it for sure? <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, like. Just to reinforce you, like the art in this book is unreal. I mean, what, what, you know, there's not a single part of it that I can isolate as being stronger than the rest because it's all strong layouts, designs, details, line work, coloring. I mean, every page was a beauty. Like I, I, I would be happy to own, flip through, whatever, any of these pages and any day of the week cool visual spider-man blasting kindred through the head like it just juggles that kind of like silly grounded creepy all of that you know in in, in this issue so well look i love mark bagley he's the guy that his art attracted me to reading spider-man comics in the first place i'm disappointed that spencer or that that gleason is not going to be able to finish up this story right like it's just art from a completely other level. And if he has to do every other issue because it takes him so long to do this, so be it. I I wish editorial could have planned a little bit better and given him the time and space to do every issue of this. I'll take it when I can get it because this is like, you know, from the cover on through some of the most beautiful looking stuff. And I think in terms of character stuff, this is the biggest progression we've gotten since issue one. And if this is the follow-up to issue one, or even, you know, I think even an issue prior, let's say remove the previous issue, you know, this was the kind of meaningful update that I wanted. It is in no way the meaningful update that I wanted to finish this story, which I suspect we'll probably finish in the next issue, but that's what I said last time. So who who am I to say? Who is anyone? I will say probably the weakest part of this story, of this comic, is, is kind of, how it opens for at least for me which is you know again kind of going back to what we were talking about in the LR issue it's it's basically kindred you know going off on Peter about the spider family or the spider people the order of the spider whatever you want to call it you know like it's it's you know basically you know he kindred accuses Peter of using them as this replacement family uh kind of it's akin to I would think of like Batman and the Bat family and, you know, that that whole kind of theme was explored at length a couple of years ago in the Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo arc, you know, the the death in the family. By using these these spider people as a family, Peter is just kind of bringing them into his circle of death and, and, and despair and destruction because everyone who goes near, who gets close to Peter dies. Uh, and, and, you know, like... I guess, you know, if you take it from the perspective of this is this is crazy Harry and these are the rantings of a madman, madman, I guess it makes sense. But the fact of the matter is, like, 
none of this is objectively true from how any of this is projected in the comics, right? I mean, like, these, they, they, these characters, while, they, you know, they kind of cross over from time to time, they really don't have this, like, symbiotic relationship. I, you know, I, I don't see it as that. Do you? No. I mean, like, when was the last time Spider-Man and Miles really did anything of substance together? Like, in fact, I you know, I, you know this would be a, a decent critique of, like, Dan Slott's run, where sometimes these characters would step up and supersede, uh, you know, Peter, whether it be Silk kind of, you know, saving Peter from things. But like Spencer has never really hit on this theme. I can't really think of many stories where he featured these characters other than the one that preceded this one. I think Gwen's critique of Kindred that none of them asked for a permission slip, you know, it does ring true and is in keeping with the way that Gwen has been characterized throughout this much longer running story, Sins Rising to Last Remains. And I like that that's consistent. But yeah, this is not a real critique of Peter that lands with any kind of heft. This isn't Batman and Robin, where he's had multiple Robins. You know, all of these characters, one, have been fine, and two, never really touch in with... Peter Parker in his book, I think actually to the detriment of the title, because I think Peter could really have a good mentor role for some of these characters. And and we really have never explored that. The fact of the matter is, it's not like these characters are all getting together every other issue to like plan adventures together. I mean, it's like, you know, they, they, they have... You know, the obligatory Spider-Verse uh, crossovers. And then, like you say, like every once in a while, like Peter and Miles will team up for something or Peter will show up in Spider-Gwen's book or whatever. But like, it's not it's not substantial. It's not I don't view these characters as a key part of the supporting cast the way Jonah or Aunt May or the Osbournes are or Mary Jane you know, or Robbie. I mean, like, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, if, if 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 Harry wanted to gather a bunch of characters that Peter has gotten close to over the years that, you know, ha- that he has brought down, I think there were a lot better characters to select than the Order of the Spider. And I feel, again, like this this is being done more for, for marketing and gimmicky purposes than actual storytelling purposes. Like, I, you know, so that's... Well, well that, it's funny that you say that because he already did assemble those people. It was all those skeletons, right? And 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 I think Kindred acknowledges that, like, he's doing it again. You know, like, it's an endless cycle. And maybe that's the point that they're trying to make. But if that is the case, then I do feel like we need to build that up in the in the books prior to this. You know, just having a, the word spider in your name isn't enough to, like, link me emotionally to Peter's relationship with them. I do think the book kind of picks up a bit after we kind of go through this lip service. I mean, so specifically when Mary Jane arrives, I feel like, the, you know, and this is where that that scene from Spectacular 200 that got referenced in LR would have been, I think, pertinent to kind of have on hand here, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So what what does MJ do that you find so interesting? Well, I, I, I just find her arrival kind of just picks up the, te- because it's, it's it, we're now acknowledging the tension between, Peter, Harry, and and her, you know, it's it's this idea, and you know, this was established in that spectacular sequence that, as deranged and psychotic as Harry is, and how he kind of wants to use MJ as bait because he knows that she is 
Peter's person and the one that he cares for more than anyone else, which he says explicitly here, the fact of the matter is because of Harry's own feelings for MJ, he will never truly harm her. And she knows that, I think. And, and you know, that's part of the reason why we had that flashback sequence from Spectacular, because it, it says that plainly, you won't hurt me. Uh, or he says, I won't hurt you. And she knows it. So it, it, it kind of creates this tension of, okay, well, we know he won't do this and she won't do that and Peter won't do this. But so how is this all going to, you know, it's like everyone's got a gun pointed at each other, but what's, what's actually going to resolve this here, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, you know, in terms of guns and stuff like Peter immediately goes off when, when she's brought in and threatened in any way. And he just this. These are the two pages that really stand out to me. Is this like splash or like spread with Peter just like busting free and unloading on on Kindred? There's the the image of him like punching him in the face. That's like a Looney Tunes cartoon where it's just like impact of his fist on his face, and then like blasting a web shooter through Kindred's head. I saw some people saying like, "Oh, Peter would never." murder him or be that violent. And it's like, well, we already established that Kindred can't die in that way a few issues back. So this was totally in character for me. It's just him kind of unleashing. He knows he can't win, but you know, his emotions got the better of him, which is a very hairy thing to do or Peter thing to do. I thought that Gleason's work here was just stunning. I mean, even down to the details of like how Harry then responds, having maggots just crawling through Peter's face to the rest of the issue is like a kind of gross detail that, you know, just sets the tone really well. Yeah. <laughs> and on the, and on, on the topic of maggots, MJ suggests we have dinner, which kind of brought me back to, again, that, that issue, the anniversary issue of Spectacular that I know was kind of referenced with the, the table of, of corpses uh, with Kindred. But, you know, I, I, it just brought me back to that, that, that the, which is still one of my favorite single issues of Spectacular Spider-Man ever or any Spider-Man comic ever for its sheer awkwardness and, and just tension. Right. Yeah, that's one of the first Spider-Man comics I ever read. And it's one I revisit uh, uh, very often. So speaking of references, this book then really leans really heavily on issues that I don't think we've really visited that much in this story up to this point. And that are like the drug code issues of, you know, ASM 96 to 98. But don't you mean issue 40, Dan? Don't you mean issue 40? (laughs) Yes, I do. I do. Yeah. Uh, Again, going Uh, back to the thing that we put a pin in, just an egregious error on the part of the editor here where they're, they're clearly referencing amazing Spider-Man number 96 and they talk about issue number 40, which PS is two issues before Mary Jane is even introduced in the freaking comics. Like what, like what, it's just sloppy, sloppy, egregious, pathetic editing. Come on, come on, Marvel. You got to do better than that. Sorry. Just saying that. If I had to know, if I had to know prize it, Mark, there's a reference to Amazing Spider-Man 40 a couple pages later, and I think they just didn't check, and they just typed it in twice, and that's it. You know, we're used to spelling errors in this book. You know what I mean? Like, I think back to the Dan Slot, like later Dan Slot era, where there was just spelling errors galore, and now there aren't spelling errors in this book, and part of that, I wonder, is maybe it got to Joe uh, Karamaga late, so he didn't have time to spell check it or 
whatever, but um, it seems very clearly that the ability to spell of the writer is how this stuff plays out. And who could say maybe Nick Spencer wrote that this is a reference to ASM 40, although it says Nick Lowe's name down there at the bottom. So, but yeah, I mean like don't put an editor's note and then give the wrong issue, especially one as egregious as this. I mean, you, you texted me this. You're like, that's a fireable offense. I don't know if I would go that far, but it's bad. Well, I, because again, in the context of this kind of sloppiness is not new to this book. Like you said, we got the spell, we get spelling errors and we've had other mis misreferences like this where they, they talk about one issue and it's like three issues off. This is not even three issues off. It's 56 issues off and it's from a completely different arc. MJ is not even a character yet. I mean, come on. Like I, I just, you know, okay, fine. You don't want to say it's a fireable offense. Fine. But like someone like Tom Brevoort, Who's the you know executive editor? I mean, like you know, he's someone who's just so steeped in Marvel history and seems to be so persnickety when it comes to, you know, these kind of details. Like, I just don't understand how a company that has someone like him close to the top of the of the food chain could tolerate sloppy mistakes like this. That's all. That's 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 my final say on that. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll come back to it, you know, at the end of the episode, like we've been alluding to. But like, y- you ask yourself, like, what is the editor's job? I mean, making references is not the editor's job solely, but like, th- the one visual presence of the editor is mucked up like this. It suggests other things are happening as well. Okay, so let's say they got it right. They didn't, but let's say they got it right, and they do in a few pages have an editor's note for issue 96. So at some point they got it right. You know, to Nick Spencer's credit, he is, you know, coherently referencing issue 96. Harry has a quote. He says, how about paying some attention to the star, which is a a line directly pulled from um, issue 96. And I went back and reread it. And the context of that scene that Harry is alluding to is when Harry and Peter are attending a theater opening for MJ and Harry congratulates Peter for taking a job with Norman Osborn, his father, who at the time is still suffering amnesia. And this is when MJ cuts in for attention. And she does so not only to draw attention to herself in the opening of her play, but to flirt with Peter in front of Harry. So I thought it was interesting that this is the line that's referenced coming out of Harry's mouth, because clearly he's still bitter about it. You know, on her big night, she would use this as ammunition to, you know, in front of Harry, flirt with Peter. In the context of these original comics, this is what set Harry on the path to to drug abuse and and, you know, basically changed his character for the worse. So, I mean, clearly it had a cascading effect in terms of Harry's psyche and then. You know, granted, Peter would get back with Gwen at some point and then Gwen would die and then he got with MJ. But like, you know, there was also this was also kind of the the hinting that they were still a potential future for Peter and MJ. So, I mean, like this, these 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 books, these original books carry a lot of weight. And this was kind of a smart callback, albeit one that kind of came suddenly, given how critical these moments turn out to be for what Kindred's motivations end up being in this issue. Right. Because the motivations seem to kind of quickly swing into this kind of jealousy 
and and blaming of Peter for taking MJ uh, away from him. And Peter even calls Harry out on this. Like, is this really just about you being jilted over like something we did when we were kids? I may have betrayed you, but also who is the one that saved you when you overdosed? You know, it can't really be just about this. And which is, which is, you know, there, there's a certain thing I enjoy in this comic, which is that the characters agree with me, the reader, like it really shouldn't just be about that, you know? And later on when, when like Peter is begging and we'll talk about this more, but Peter is begging to know why this is happening. I'm begging to know why this is happening. Now, you can you can argue the the value and merit of that type of storytelling, but I did like that like I could follow this conversation and agree with Peter like, Harry, this is really lame if that's really what this is all about. It kind of feels like as these characters, and granted, you know, we have never seen Harry as kindred, so we still don't know what the wrinkle is. You feel like in terms of Peter and Harry They've had this fight already. You know what I mean? Like, why are we having this fight again? It doesn't quite add up. Something's weird here. Uh, I I did like the kind of the next wrinkle we get, which I don't know if we've ever had it stated quite like this before. But, you know, Kindred basically claims that, you know, by... And this is the ASM-40 reference. <laughs> when when, <laughs> when Spider-Man initially defeats the Green Goblin, defeats Norman, you know, Norman experiences amnesia and doesn't remember who he is or who Spider-Man is or anything. And Peter decides to, like, maintain the ruse. And, of course, Peter does it under the, the, the guise of, well, you know, I wanted to make sure, Harry, you had your father. You know, Harry kind of calls him out on that and says, no, I mean, like, you did it to protect your identity. And, like, I I think even those comics kind of point that out. I mean, like, yeah, there was some uh, selflessness to Peter's actions. But I think at the core, it was selfish because it was like how I can have my cake and eat it. You know, and like this is this is always the thing with Peter. It's like when he takes the shortcut, you know, someone has to pay the price. You know, it never it never truly works out for him. And Peter, I think when it comes to Norman, especially with the way Harry explains it here, he took the shortcut here. You know, he he decided, like, let's just pretend none of this ever happens because he doesn't know my identity anymore and I can live my life. And as Harry points out, because, you know, once Norman regained his his memory, people paid the price, namely in this case, Gwen Stacy. So it, it, it shows again, like, you know. Peter's mistake led to the death of someone he loved and led to the death that other people loved. So, you know, it's it's the tragedy of Peter not doing the true right thing, I think. Right. And, and you know, to me, and I know this issue weirdly doesn't get into it, the one more day of it all, you know, but I think ultimately that's where we're headed is like Peter can say he's doing things altruistically, right? Like he saved Harry from losing a father and gave him another chance with Norman. But that wasn't really the reason he did it, you know? And, like, the same with, like, you know, Aunt May's death, right? He may have saved Aunt May. And I think that was his, you know, predominant motivation. But he also used that as an opportunity to, you know, reshuffle everyone's lives in one more day. And and that may have some some ramifications, you know, to it. And, and I think that's ultimately where we're heading, Although I do find it incredibly weird that we don't get there in this particular issue. But yeah, so I mean, and like I was saying before, Peter rejects this too, which I did as well as a reader, because I'm like, like you said, Mark, 
haven't we already had this argument? Like, maybe not that specifically, but this is what the events of Spectacular 200 and the preceding stories were about. You know, that's what motivated Harry before. So why are we returning to this? Especially because, as Peter points out in this book, the Harry he knows rebuilt his life and wasn't obsessed with the past and moved on. And inherently, that's the biggest struggle I have with reading these books. It's like, I feel like I'm reading a different Harry Osborne. And the longer you delay telling me what exactly is going on with Harry, it's hard for me to buy into any of this because I know, like Peter did, does, that this is not the Harry that we've been reading for the past 10 years. Right. I mean, and and then we get a, a very, you know, a literal reference to Brand New Day. And then you get MJ saying, Vaguely, he doesn't remember. I mean, this is clearly about one more day and brand new day, but they just won't tell us why. And it's like, why? Like, what is the point of stringing this out? Just tell your story, Nick Spencer, for the love of everything. Like, what what, what are we waiting for here? (laughs) Even the characters are begging Kindred at this point to tell them what they need to confess to because they don't remember. And when, like... I agree. I like that everybody's on the same page, but like we've been on this page for so long. Just tell us, like get to the point, you know, and, and, and the end of this issue really worries me because it seems like we're getting a swerve. We're bringing in Kingpin and things like that. And Norman Osborn. And I feel like we're going to get a swerve away from what that is. And, and, and if this book does not conclude in the next issue of telling us why that is, uh, I will be beyond irate uh, more than I was at this, this issue for, for not telling us. I, there's so many clues like Harry, that close up of Harry's eye with the bottle covering it. Like whether that's an allusion to his addictive personality, it's a callback to the, the image we saw at the conclusion of uh, sins rising with Norman and his one green eye that turned blue. Like, what is it? Like, what is going on? What are these images? Like, help me unpack this. But in terms of interesting things, though, MJ says he doesn't remember. Did you feel like she was saying that because she remembered? Yeah, um, that was my like, read of it. That she, was my read of it. But then what does she remember? <laughs> I mean, like, wh- why are we tap dancing around this? But let, well, so let's just let's just get through the rest of what happened in this comic and then we can talk about what may or may not make us irate in another week. OK, yeah, sure. So so like MJ has never remembered the events of one more day before we've we've hinted at that a few times here, but it was ultimately concluded that she didn't, in fact, remember it. So th- maybe we're getting a rat con on that. But then MJ steps up and volunteers to sacrifice herself to Kindred for Peter to take the responsibility and inflict pain, right? Because her death would hurt him more than anything. He would rather die than see her uh, put, put through this. And I think inherently she knows that Kindred is not interested in hurting her based on spectacular 200. And yet Kindred seems to rear up like he's going to attack her and accept her sacrifice. Did you think there was any part of Harry that could have gone through with hurting her? No, I, I, well, I mean, the whole thing becomes mood anyway, but based on what happens next. So it's kind of hard to speculate, but I, my sense was that Harry was, Harry, even as Kindred was not going to follow through. 
So what happens next? <laughs> well, then, then we have you know, as as hinted at the end of at the LR issue, Norman and and Kingpin show up, and 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 Norman is Norman is in full goblin mode. So apparently, everything that happened <laughs> with the Sin Eater, whatever, Norman found his way out of it again. You know, the old slippery Norman Osborn did it again. <laughs> I thought this was exceedingly dumb. Like for me, this was the weakest part of the comic because it, he he's like, you think I wouldn't have figured out how to cheat the sin eater. And it's like, well, he certainly didn't act like it. So if you're trying to pull that, none of that happened. It's like, to me, that was a narrative cheat. There was no seeding of that anywhere. It just seems like, I wasn't affected by this because like, did he drink like a gut, the goblin formula, like off, off camera? Like what, what exactly happened here? I mean, his motivation makes sense, right? Like I have to stop you from killing them because it's my job to kill them. But only, it only makes sense if he's the goblin. And like, I thought he wasn't like, I was looking forward to that uh, story arc. And all of a sudden that seems to be pooped. And if you look at his eyes, they're green again. So, Somehow, was he wearing blue contacts? I don't know. And then, of course, he throws a pumpkin bomb in, and who gets caught in the blast? It's Mary Jane. And um, I saw a bunch of variety of reactions to this, which is like many people online thought that she was mortally wounded. I think I didn't react to it because Mary Jane's not dead till she's dead. You you know what I mean? Like, uh, this book already seems like it's starting to hedge its way out of that. I, I won't believe it, but I do think there is something that's going to happen with Mary Jane's, like, I think she's going to be on the edge of death and something's going to pull her back. And she seems to be a- a- aware of it, right? Kendry gets really pissed off about the bomb and hurting MJ. And then Wilson Fish triggers something that swallows everybody up in darkness. I can tell you what that something is if you read the preview for 56, but I'll hold off in case you want to be surprised by it. But the most interesting thing here is MJ's final line as Peter is cradling her and she's presumably in the throes of dying. She says, don't worry, you're not getting rid of me that easy, Tiger. It's going to be okay. Trust me. Which means, in my mind, she knows something. Some She's more tied to this than we thought. She knows some, she has some kind of rock beat paper situation going on here. I, you know, I know Rock doesn't beat paper, but somehow she's making this happen. I, I don't know how how much it's been truly gamed out by MJ in her mind based on that one sentence. But like to me, that was the her saying that was the giveaway, regardless of the how and the why, that she's not dead and she's not going to be dead. I don't buy it. I, I like like I I felt. If they had ended the issue without that sequence, it might have been more of a cliffhanger and might have caused more of a stir online, I think. But the fact that, like, she just very plainly says that, like, I'm not, you know, you can't get rid of me that easy. I I mean, you know, yeah, I mean... If you want to be incredulous about it, you could be like, well, you know, she just got throw, you know, a pumpkin bomb thrown at her. She's not a superhero. How could she survive that? But, you know, like, let's also keep in mind, what was it, an issue ago? We saw Kindred kill and resurrect Peter like 30 times over in succession. So, I, like, you know, like, come on, comics people. She's not dead. You know, maybe that's what makes it more intriguing to me is that, like, whatever she's alluding to, to me, seems to be some kind of, like, deal with the devil, ipso facto, 
some cosmic fate thing. And in many ways, whatever that is, is more interesting to me because her suddenly being in the know on all this, you know, suggests to me that maybe there's something actually more interesting going on here. So if anything is keeping me excited for continuing, it's that wrinkle and the kind of wrinkles that I already presume are, are bound to come. Uh, as I've been saying for a long time, bound to come, bound to come, you know, uh, call my bluff, Nick Spencer, make it happen. But then wait a second now, Dan, are you telling me that this was not the last chapter of last remains? No, I, I, I am telling you that, but I'm also telling you that we're, we're about to get a double sized fallout issue next and I think actually in like a week, like they're fast tracking these next few issues, I think maybe to try to get this story over with. Amazing Spider-Man number 56 was not on any checklists about the story, was it, Dan? No, it was not. It was not on any checklists about this story. Oh my goodness. So you're telling me the comics lied to me? They must have, Mark. And I know that you live and die by your checklist. You're going to have to relinquish your OCD-ness and buy another issue where this will be uh, will be uh, resolved. And, and get ready because we're getting three issues of Amazing Spider-Man in January. So back to the brand new day era. <laughs> so, so here's the thing, Dan. And I think I even, when you first texted me about this comic last week, I think I even said this to you or texted this to you, or at least I thought it, <laughs> which is that, you know, and I'm not trying to defend anything, but like at the end of the day, is it truly, is is Marvel publishing, Marvel editorial, are they truly obligated to resolve a story, not just in a timely fashion, but in a fashion that they claim they're going to resolve it in? And the answer is, no, they're not obligated. They can do whatever the hell they want. As long as people keep buying the comic, they're going to do whatever they want. At the same token, is it good practice? Does it feed good feelings from your customers to do things like that? Is it even good narrative execution to not resolve your story in a timely manner? No, I don't think it is. I think it's it's sloppy. I think it's 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 infuriating. I think that it's insulting to your readers to keep stringing them along like this, especially without meaningful payoffs to keep them invested. I think that they're they're feeding, it's cynical, they're feeding on people just to keep going back for more because that's what they've been doing so far. And that's, I think, kind of at the heart of where a lot of our criticism is. It's like, do they need to be doing the, these things? No, they don't. It's not their. It's not their obligation. It's not their. It's not. A, there's no contract with us as readers to do these kinds of things. But like, you know, at what point do people? Clearly not us, because we got a show to run and we're completists in terms of our collection. But at what point do people just say no more? And I wonder if this is an issue that might have had some people say no more. Because you you reading this issue, it says. This is the end. Even in the backup page, it's like, I hope you enjoyed the end of Last or last Remains. Get ready for the fallout next. And I don't think anybody who read this felt like this was conclusive in any way. You know, I'm thinking back to like other times, major times Marvel has done something like this. Like think about like Secret Wars number nine. It was an eight issue series and out of nowhere, they tacked on an issue nine. You know, you could, you could be cynical about it and say, you know, they were selling so well, they wanted to make another issue to make a bunch of money. Fine. 
That, that could very well be what happened in that instance. But me reading that story, you know, they, they let us know well ahead of time. They gave us like this really new thing. They called it Secret Wars number nine. And it was a really substantial issue that really felt like every, every chapter of that book felt essential. I would even argue that series would probably have been better at 12 issues than the nine that ultimately was. There was a weird time jump in it that felt like they had to remove things because their schedule couldn't allow it. It was delayed, yada, yada. But it felt like a whole package. When you title something Last Remains and you stick to it and say, this is the end of the story, get ready for the fallout, I just don't know that I can ever believe you again. You, like, it is so preposterously not that you know, and if you if you issued a mea culpa that was like, look, we had so much story to tell, we extended it an issue, then fine. Like, and, and maybe we're haggling over something dumb like a title. But at the same point, I don't feel like this series needed this many issues to tell the story that it is. It feels padded, and then they're not even being honest about it. In, in, in you know, ultimately at the end, there, I think this series has been incredibly well written by Nick Spencer. I mean, we've had our problems with the pacing of it and things like that, but in terms of just pure writing craft, you know, I probably wouldn't have structured a lot of these stories the same way, but this is a talented writer. There's no doubt about it. And these are incredible artists that are producing these books. This book has been gorgeous for even before Nick Spencer came on, you know, like Stuart Eminen and, and things like that. And it's clear that Nick Lowe is a real talent. He brought you know, Otley on this book, right? He can get these people onto this title and, and make it happen, you know? But why are we jumbling artists around so much? Why are the titles so confusing? Why are stories being paced this way? Why are things being teased well before they should be? Why are solicitations inaccurate? Why are there editorial errors in terms of what issues they're referencing? Like, in my mind, the editing of this book is not aiding the writer and the artist. And that's an editor's job is to aid the writer and artist and maybe to take some of the, you know, slack or take some of the, you know, blame for things that are wrong with the book because we kind of want to give the writer and artist the benefit of the doubt. And I know as someone who used to be an editor in comics that oftentimes you really have problems with writers and artists that aren't meeting deadlines and things like that. And so you need to shuffle. But and I think, Mark, and you can jump in after this is, and you've been saying this, this has been a consistent problem since the moment Nick Lowe joined the book as editor. And I don't want to point fingers, but sometimes things just go on for so long, you just have to call it out. I mean, the fact of the matter is, Dan, and like, look, I'm not trying to put, you know, anyone on a pedestal as in a way to disparage Nick Lowe. But like, let's let's be honest here as longtime readers of the book. The fact that you had a book in the mid to late 2000s, triple ship every month with a rotating cast of writers and artists that were like trading off storylines and, you know, like, was this really going to be so cohesive? And the fact that despite the frenetic schedule, despite all of the personalities involved, despite some of the conflicting styles and artistic styles and, and narrative styles going on, the fact that 
Amazing Spider-Man during the brand new day era under the editor, editor editing of 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 Stephen Wacker never missed a beat. Didn't have these kinds of egregious errors. Had consistent storytelling throughout. Had arcs wrapped up when they needed to be wrapped up. Didn't pad things. And you could just see the quality of the editing drop off precipitously once Wacker left the book. I, and, you know, like Wacker had a volatile personality that pissed a lot of fans off online. And so I don't want to get into that here. But the fact of the matter is the guy could edit the hell out of this book and got everyone together. And Nick Lowe can't do it the way he could. And I think that it just shows in in stories like this. And it shows with someone like Spencer, who frankly, I, I agree. I think Spencer is talented, but I said this to you before we started recording as well. I think Spencer can't be totally blameless here because I think Spencer is someone who, when when left completely unchecked or without guidance, gets unmoored from what he wants to ultimately tell. I think he's someone that needs a very heavy hand from editorial to keep him focused and to keep him on track. And he's not getting that right now. And I think it's doing his story a disservice. I I mean, you know, I could be totally wrong. I'm not going to put words in Nick Spencer's mouth. But like, I think when time is, you know, once time is set on this run, I think when we look back, we're just going to like, I don't know how satisfied we're ultimately going to be with how these stories went, because it just feels like the Nick Spencer run has been filled with many individual great moments and stories, but there has not been a single arc that he has told so far where we have gone, wow, what a great arc, right? I mean, nothing is like, as a story, multiple parts, we, they cannot stick it in any way. And, you know, we saw this a lot during Dan Slott, again, under Nick Lowe, which was like, like, like Spider-Verse, for example, and the end of Superior, which is when after Wecker had left, like it just things become unmoored and unglued and they don't string together correctly and it, things get sloppy and you could just tell. And like it, it's, you know, a good editor, it's it's clear that that these guys need a good editor and we're not they're not getting it. And I think the only reason that you and I feel comfortable saying this is, you know, we've watched this happen for over half a decade. You know what I mean? Like if this was just one issue, it's hard to really point at where the problem lies. And again, we could be totally wrong. Like maybe Slot and Spencer share, you know, similar qualities of turning pages in at the last minute and things like that. But I I feel like part of having a job too is like, you know, knowing when you have the resources that you need to get it done the way that it should be, you know, and maybe this is like, uh, and I'm going to bring politics into this. So I'm sorry, like people in the Trump administration that are like, I'm only there to make sure he doesn't blow up the world, you know, but at some point, like you need to make sure that like, you know, if you can't handle it, if you, if you are judging, you know, juggling too many titles or you have a writer that isn't, delivering in a certain way, it's time to like reassess, you know, and this book is not a garbage fire by any, by any means. It's just that like, there's a consistent problem and not seeing that problem addressed is troubling uh, over the long term. And I, I just want the spider office. I know none of them are listening to this, but like if I could send like my, whatever karma out into the universe, it would be like, Hey, maybe it's time for a meeting to figure out like, is this pipeline working? Like, what can we do? You know, like, do we need to bring in someone that is 
whether it be like a stronger story editor to rein in uh, Nick Spencer or like someone that truly knows their Spider-Man stuff and can really back up those references. Like whatever it is, you know, I feel like they really need it. And I don't know if they know that they need it. I mean, look, Dan, I'm, I'm going to be a little navel gazy and egotistical here. I mean, who says they're not listening? I mean, like, I let me uh, let me extend the extend the invitation. We have we have tried many times over the years to get Nick Lowe on this show. He's never come on. It kind of never goes beyond like a tweet back or forth or something like that, or an email into Marvel's PR department that goes either unanswered or oh yeah, we'll check something out and then they never give us a date or anything. Fine, whatever. So. Come on the show and tell us why we're wrong. Tell us how you got the ship running on time, that, that these errors are just little silly oversights. It's not it's not indicative of a larger sloppiness in your craft. And that, you know, the and that this kind of storytelling and and padding and decompression and pulling things out further than how you're advertising them, how that's how stories need to be told today. Tell us why we're wrong. I, I just I want to issue that out there for whenever this gets to the to the point where someone like that could hear it, because like it's it's just ridiculous. Like, you know, don't be afraid to come. You know, we will give you a full audit, you know, no interruptions, no, no nastiness, no nothing. Tell us why we're wrong. Just tell us why we're wrong, because I, I just feel like. Like you said, they either don't realize that these errors are happening or they think or they know what's going on and they think that they're right regardless. So it's one or the other. <laughs> so One of the takeaways I had, you know, both from working shortly as an editor, but also like talking to Tom Brennan shortly ago was that like he expressed, you know, doing the Obama issue saved a bunch of people's jobs. Right. And ultimately, that was one of the most proud moments I had working in comics is that I got to, I put, pulled this thing off and it kept us from letting people go. Right. And if at the end of the day, this kindred thing is like really like, you know, grease in everybody's palms or whatever the phrase I want to use, if it's selling enough that like, it means people can keep working and it keeps this comic afloat and people employed, then great. Like, I want to know that, you know, like, we're cultural critics, Mark, like we can only read the book as it is. And I don't know that I can incorporate someone's, you know, paycheck into how I critique something, you know, but I do want to know, I want to know the context for these things or how they're created or like is truly double shipping a book that like we, we should accept this padding because it is double shipping and that's just the way it's going to have to go. I want to know. This isn't about like bashing anyone. It's like I'm seeking insight because I can only keep being frustrated with these books uh, you know, if this continues. And I don't want to be frustrated with these books. I want to be an ally. Let me just say one last thing and then I, 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 my piece will be done. And if you have a final shot, you can do it, too. But like like let's you know, let's keep in mind, I am currently living in a status quo, Dan. I have not set foot in a comic book shop or my comic book shop in over nine months now. I get my comic. I, well, you know, we didn't have any comics for the months of what Mar- mid-March to almost May until we started getting comics again. Like how long was it? And I get my I get an email once a week from my local comic book shop saying this is what this is what's coming in this week. I mean, of course, like everything, you know, the pull lists and solicitations and all that has all been thrown astray 
because of COVID, you know, so I'm getting my comics mailed out to me sometimes two, three at a time per week. I'm paying for, to get them shipped to me. I sign up for extra books just to kind of get a little more bang for my buck and also to support my local comic book shop. But the fact of the matter is like, you know, when it comes to Spider-Man, you know, I'm not going to quit the book because it's just been an, an inherent part of who I am for the last 30 whatever years of my life. There are other people who are doing the same thing I'm doing right now, who have to deal with this status quo, who have to get the comics in this fashion, who are not going out, who can't go out, or, you know, their comic shops aren't open the way they used to be, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, you know, like you said, the the Obama issue saved the day back in the day. You know, like how many people at this point are just going to simply send an email to their comic shop and be like, I'm going to drop ASM. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, cause it's just, is it worth the effort of having to go through all that right now at a time where nothing is normal, where everything is a pain, pain in the ass, pardon my French, you know, to, to get these books when it's, there's just no, there's no payoff apparently, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. It's just so beyond frustrating and it's maybe even more frustrating by the current, the current status quo, in my opinion. It's just like, you know, like it's just insulting and, and causing frustration in something that should be an escape for people right now, frankly. So that's my final two cents. You can say something else or we could just do grades. So there we go. Let's just go to grades. I think you put it very well. So uh, Mark, how do you begin grading an issue like this? I'm going to give the book a B because I do think it was a strong book. It probably would be even higher if this was like a middle chapter of the book. But considering this was advertised as a conclusion, it's not a conclusion. So I can't go higher than a B. But like there's there's enough good stuff there to pull whatever frustration I had into a B. And I, I feel exactly the same way. I mean, like, you know, and I feel bad dinging the artists as much as they probably don't care about what our grade is for the marketing of this book. But I do think marketing is a core part of it. You know, like I went to my comic book shop really excited this week because the story was concluding. I wanted to know what was going on and I I walked away frustrated. So, yeah, I think a B is generous compared to how I felt. But I do think the content warrants a grade of that caliber. All right, Dan. Well, why don't we why don't we take it on home? <laughs> after after this 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 long day's journey in tonight. It is that time, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of the Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Busema, and Ray Sumzer. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. This episode was originally released on Patreon as a live stream hangout with us back when the comic was first released. So if you'd like to help us support our show's continued existence and these reviews while joining us on the live stream, why not head on over to our Patreon and sign up? So, Mark, here we are at the end of the podcast where this thing is definitively coming to a complete stop and we tie up everything. So, goodbye, everyone. Dan, don't we typically end with me saying the motto to the show and you team me up with some kind of dumb joke or a question? Huh. Yeah, that 
that would make sense. But I guess you'll have to wait until the fallout of this podcast to hear it. Yeah. <laughs>